0: We're continuing in our series of messages today from the Gospel of John. The message became flesh, and we've been looking the past several weeks at these chapters 18 and 19 where the message is being delivered through the events of the cross. We'll be finishing this section today. We'll be concluding chapter 19. I was thinking as I was looking at today's passage, what passes for piety these days? Some of you are saying, what? Uh, it's a word we don't use much anymore because piety presupposes a desire to please God. And I think we live in an increasingly secular world that uh, doesn't think much along those lines. But I think even, even in a secular setting, we can still be holier than thou, can't we? Uh, let me just throw out one example, and it's... Only one of many I could have chosen, but so don't read anything into it. But there's a difference between being a vegetarian and being a vegan, right? And it's not just specifically the things you eat or don't eat. It's that being a vegetarian is a health choice. Being a vegan is a moral choice. Uh, It's kind of a secular version of piety, right? You are... uh, Claiming to have a, a love for all living things that somehow is to be uh, emulated and uh, it's a way of putting yourself out there in front of others uh, in some way and uh, making yourself a representative of a particular kind of piety. Whatever it is we choose to do with, with, with our lives, we, we often really want to have other people be impressed by us we want them to look on us and uh, be impressed by our virtue or to think of us as exemplary or maybe we don't reach that high but at least we'd like for people to think of us as the good guys the the kind of the good people I don't I know that if we're honest though we realize that most of this is just mere show we're just trying to look good in front of others. We're, we're kind of doing in life what we do on Instagram, right? You, you pick that perfect shot that represents that perfect moment when you know that moment was nothing like that. But that's what you put out there. We do that with our whole lives. But is there such a thing as genuine piety? Something that is truly pleasing to God, something that is genuinely worthy of emulation? I think in today's passage, we'll see a good example of, of kind of two versions, one that certainly is not praiseworthy, but one that is the real thing. I've titled today's message, Genuine Piety. And we're in John chapter 19, 31 through 42, so we'll be finishing chapter 19. Let's start with verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs be broken and they be taken away. Uh, For those of you who are not here, the the last passage I preached, uh, we're looking at the moment right after Jesus on the cross Crucified with one criminal on one side, one criminal on the other. Uh, on the cross, he uh, declares that he has finished. It is finished, and he gives up his spirit. He yields his spirit. He dies. And this is the moment exactly following that. And John tells us something that happened, the Jews. And that's kind of John in his gospel, his shorthand uh, to talk about the Jewish leadership, Uh, So he's. I don't think John means to say the Jews to mean that every single Jew in the world uh, was in on this. Uh, In fact, all of his disciples were Jews as well. But he uses the term in his gospel to point to the religious leadership and kind of lump them together because they were unanimous in their rejection of Jesus. So, uh, this Jewish leadership that John has just explained to us, how they have orchestrated the nighttime, middle of the night arrest of Jesus, the rushing through over the night, the, the sham of a trial, and bringing him to Pilate at dawn, and twisting Pilate's arm and forcing him by th- political threats to actually sign off on the crucifixion. They've pushed all this through and have succeeded in Jesus not only being crucified but dying. These guys, these who have just orchestrated all of this, now approach Pilate with yet another request. It's the day of preparation. John has uh, describes Jesus dying on Passover. It kind of we get the impression from the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke, that uh, Jesus was crucified the day after. Uh, the Passover and that the Last Supper was a Passover meal, but John very explicitly uh, describes it as happening on the day of Passover. Jesus is being crucified on the day of Passover. Uh, So that day is a day of preparation because it so happens that the following day is a Sabbath. So that would mean that that Saturday was the Sabbath that kicked off the whole week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and that you know passover and the feast of unleavened bread one one happened the day before and then the the other followed immediately the week so it was like an eight day event uh, that was the the single most important jewish uh sacred festival that they celebrated all year in fact uh, there were more people in Jerusalem for Passover and unleavened bread than at any other time in the year. The population multiplied tenfold. Uh, and so this is the, the highest and holiest of celebrations. And the fact that it just happened to be that it fell on a Sabbath. That the first day of the week of unleavened breads was, bread was falling on a Sabbath made it doubly special and sacred. So, because of this really special day, they wanted to ensure that the bodies of those crucified would not remain on the crosses until nightfall, at which point in the Jewish way of thinking, once the sun set, it's already the Sabbath, it's the next day. Now why would they care about that? Well, there's a passage in Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 and 23 where God is giving Moses instructions on how to deal with people who are, are sentenced to death. And he says this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance. Well, here's the thing. Moses seems to indicate that even a criminal who was worthy of being put to death because of the crimes he's committed, even somebody like that, because he is still a being created in the image and likeness of God, even he has to be decently buried. You can't leave the, the, the condemned criminal who has died just out there hanging to rot. Now, in antiquity, many cultures would do that as, as just the ultimate sign of, of uh, rejection and humiliation and, and just despising a person. Let their body just rot uh, out in the open. But the Jews were commanded in the law of Moses to not do that even, even to the worst of them. They were to be buried and, and given that one uh, act of honoring uh, even in death. Even if they deserved the death they had received. And uh, it talks about the practice of hanging so the Jews in Jesus' day considered that crucifixion was a kind of hanging because you were placed on not a a tree per se but on a wooden structure which is taken from a tree and affixed to it in such a way that you were sentenced to death so they saw it as very much the same thing that to crucify somebody was very much like hanging somebody and God says in that passage in Deuteronomy that the person who dies in this manner is cursed. He's under a curse and the reason you take that body off on the same day and bury it is so that the curse that is affixed to the one who has been sentenced to death does not become a curse on the whole land itself for failing to follow God's instructions and honoring uh, in that small way the person who has died. So they're concerned that these dead bodies remain overnight and that this would contaminate the land of Jerusalem uh, and that this would uh, spoil their whole sacred feast and their whole week of unleavened bread so they're very concerned that Pilate takes the bodies down before sundown but of course they have to die before he can do that so there's a practice the Romans developed because even though the point of crucifixion was to prolong the humiliation and agony as long as possible There were, when you crucify as many people as the Romans did, there inevitably will come a day when you need somebody to die quicker. And they developed a way to do this. Uh, They had an iron mallet that they would use and just crush the legs of the person on the cross. Now, why would they do that? Well, having your feet affixed uh, and your arms, uh, breathing was very difficult on a cross. So you would raise yourself up by, by straightening your legs so that you could breathe. If you break somebody's legs, they can no longer straighten themselves up and they will die very quickly by asphyxiation. Uh, So this was the practice the Romans had developed and uh, they asked Pilate for permission to, or not permission, but for him to actually command the soldiers to do this, to break their legs so that they will be dead by sundown and we can get on with our festival and uh, the land will not be contaminated by them It's very interesting that uh, they have just crucified Jesus unjustly and they have uh, pushed and prodded and done everything uh, in ways that break Jewish requirements for how you deal with bringing somebody uh, to a death sentence. Uh, this arrest that happens in the middle of the night not publicly not where people can see what's going on but in hiding so that nobody will be aware of what's going on and they spend all night rushing him around in this sham of a trial where false witnesses are getting up and saying stuff but they're so they're such big liars they can't even get their stories straight and they have no case really built until Jesus seems to say something that they think maybe they can accuse him of blasphemy but here's the problem they know the Romans don't care about that. They don't care. They think they're a whole bunch of gods, so who cares what he says about that? But for Jews, blasphemy is, is a, a cause. You know, if somebody says something against the God of Israel or, or claims to be God, uh, they could bring that. So that's the best they've got, but they still rush him to Pilate at dawn, and uh, their accusation is not that he claims to be God. Their accusation initially is that this guy is a troublemaker and uh, he's rising up as some kind of messianic figure and he's going to uh, put himself out, uh, out there as king of the Jews and the Romans don't want somebody like that rising up. They want the people that they put in charge to be in charge, which happens to be the Sanhedrin who are the guys who are getting Jesus crucified. Pilate talks to Jesus, says, I don't, he's not guilty. Guys, you guys have no case here. So then they, they start flipping, flip-flopping and trying to figure out something. No, he said he's the son of God, which actually terrifies Pilate because he can realize, you know, there's something weird about this guy. He's not a regular guy. I think he is what he just said he is. And he's terrified and he's doing everything he can to get Jesus free. But here's how they finally get him to kill Jesus. If you let Jesus go, you are no friend of the Caesar Anybody who claims to be a king rises up against Caesar. And the threat was clear. Pilate, you either crucify him or we're going to send word to Rome that we brought you an insurrectionist and you let him go. Pilate's position was already tenuous. The guy that was his backer in, in, uh, in Rome had only recently been deposed because he had lost favor with the Emperor so Pilate was already on thin ice so he went ahead and approved this crucifixion this sham of a crucifixion it's not the first time in the Bible we've seen somebody do something completely horrible and wrap it up in the most perfect observance of the law of Moses you could imagine 1st Kings 21 King Ahab of Israel wanted to buy a plot of land from a neighbor of his because he wanted to plant vegetables. And apparently his own land, he didn't want to use it for that. So he asked this guy to sell him his land. And the guy said, I'm sorry, this is my ancestral land. I owe it to my children. I am I'm hanging. I, I can't sell you our, our family land. And Ahab throws a fit. And then his wife Jezebel comes in and says, what's the problem? Oh, I want this garden, I want to plant vegetables, this guy won't sell it to me. So Jezebel uh, seems to know enough about the law of Moses to arrange to get him the land. She calls the elders of the town and tells them, I want you guys to call a fast. And let the people know there's some big issue and we need to seek God's favor and let him know that we're repentant and all this. And then I want you, after the fast, to bring up two false witnesses. You pay them or do whatever you have to do. But you need two guys to come up and accuse the guy that owns this land, accuse him that uh, he has blasphemed against God. He has cursed God. And they do it. And they kill him and then Ahab gets up and buys the plot of land. Now the interesting thing about that story is there's a complete perversion of justice. There's a complete destruction of everything God is calling us to in his law. But there is actually on the surface of it a perfect adherence to all the demands of piety. That's what's happening here. They have railroaded through this crucifixion which is unjust and false. But they are making sure that they are dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. And they're not going to leave any of those bodies on the crosses to contaminate the land. And they want everybody to know that they are being good religious leaders and observing the law of Moses. So that everybody will continue to look at them as honorable people. As people worthy of having over them as leaders. Of course it isn't just the fact that they perverted justice. Justice. Jesus has been for years now not only saying things about himself, but doing things. And he's been saying, I have been sent from the Father, from God the Father. I have been sent to save the whole cosmos, the whole world. And he teaches, and the things he teaches correspond with the things God has been telling Israel for thousand five hundred years since he started with Moses and through the prophets. His teaching was in perfect accordance with what God had been saying to Israel. Not only that, but he did, he didn't just say the things God would say, he did the things only God could do. He took a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years and told him, get up, grab your cot and go. No physical rehab, no restructuring, no learning how to walk again. He got up and walked. He commanded the wind and the sea to shut up and they stopped immediately. He walked on water. He took five loaves of bread and two fish and with them fed over 5,000 people. Who but God can do things like that? So it wasn't just that he claimed to be God. He backed it up. And everything about his character corresponded with the God who had revealed himself to Israel as a God who loves humankind and who is disposed to the good. Everything about Jesus screamed that he was everything he said he was. So when they... Twisted justice to put him to death. It wasn't just that they unjustly put a man to death. It's that they took their Messiah. They took their God and put him on a cross. How much more wicked could a thing be than that? And they think they can just uh, go through the motions of keeping Moses' law. And at least they'll convince everybody else that they're very pious people. Because their piety is absolutely false. They've got no interest in pleasing God. They just want the people who are the basis for their position and wealth and privilege and power. They want to keep them happy. And that's all their piety is about. It's about impressing other people. It has nothing to do with God or what's right. The Jewish leaders who had just crucified Jesus made every effort to keep the commandments found in the law of Moses. In what ways do you find yourself obeying God in minor things while offending him with acts that are an affront to him? let continue verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, as they saw that he had already died, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water flowed out. And the one who has seen it has borne witness, and his witness is true. And he has known that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe as well. For these things took place so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of his will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. Pilate. Agrees. He gives the order for them to break the legs, and they take this iron mallet and break the legs of one guy. And on one side of Jesus, they break the legs of the guy on the other side of Jesus. But when they come to Jesus, they realize that he's already dead. So they don't bother breaking his legs. What's the point, right? He's already dead. Um, But one of the soldiers pierces his side with a spear. Now, Roman soldiers, they had two kind of basic weapons. They had the short sword. You've seen that in movies and things. And the spear, like three and a half feet long with an iron tip or a spearhead at the end. uh, An iron spearhead. uh, And that's what they used. Now crucifixions were done not very far off the ground so it would have been no trouble at all to reach to Jesus sometimes in artwork where they put the crosses super high but that's that's a lot of extra work they didn't do that uh, it would have been easy to just uh, jab him uh, in the side with that now why would he do that we're never told why uh, the soldier would do that uh, I, I, I think it's to confirm that he's dead The soldiers were responsible not only for crucifying him, but for guarding the bodies, making sure nobody took them off the cross. They had to die. And then they were responsible for confirming the death of of the criminal. So uh, they haven't broken his legs because he appears to already be dead. And I think he just wants to make sure Jesus is dead. So he jabs him in the side. If the body jerks or something, then they know they have to break his legs. Clearly, Jesus is dead. There's no movement to indicate otherwise and uh, this piercing the side I think just verifies death but something strange happens immediately blood and water flow out now I've I've read things and spoken to people, medical experts say that there are things physiologically that could happen in a crucifixion. The tremendous amount of stress that the internal organs are placed under could cause something like that, water forming around the heart, that kind of thing. And uh, you could uh, have something like that medically, uh, given the, the tremendous stress that one undergoes in a crucifixion. Uh, but uh, that that's not all that John has to say about this uh, that the water and the blood flowed first of all before he says anything else he tells people that the one who has seen it has borne witness and he's talking about himself he is the author of this book and he always refers to himself obliquely he never calls himself by name he never mentions his name he doesn't mention his mother's name he doesn't mention his brother's name he leaves those names out Uh, but he is telling his readers That what he is writing here is not some tradition that somebody else handed off to him. Not somebody told him that this is what happened. He is saying, I bore witness to this. When I tell you that this is what happened, it's because I was there and I saw it with my own two eyes. This is not hearsay. This is personal testimony. I saw that soldier jab Jesus as he lay as he hung there dead on the cross, and I saw that blood and water flowed out of that wound. And he says, This, this witness is true, and I know that I'm telling the truth. This is God's honest truth. I'm telling you exactly what I saw. Why? So that you may believe as well. John has witnessed so much personally up close uh, in his own life. He has been confronted with it and he has responded in faith to Jesus. How could he not believe? But he knows that the same life he has received from Jesus, the same grace he has received from Jesus, is available to anyone who will turn in faith just the way he has. And that is the reason he bears witness. Because he is not content to enjoy this by himself. He wants the world to have it as well. That's the whole reason for bearing witness. It's that what we have is too good to hold back, too good to keep to yourself. It's like discovering the cure for all forms of cancer and saying, well, as long as I don't have cancer, that's all I'm concerned about. We have found life and grace. Life everlasting, abundant, and free. And to shut up about it is a crime against humanity. We all need to hear this. We all need to receive it. And now, John says, that all of these things happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled. And if there's anything that stands out in John's account of the crucifixion, it's that every single detail was orchestrated by God. Jesus is not some guy who got in too deep and things went terribly wrong and he ended up dying a horrible death. That is not the story of the crucifixion. Jesus was not some deluded fanatic who got himself killed. Jesus was the Son of God. And we see in John's description how he controls every point from the very beginning of his arrest until his final breath and even after his final breath. Every detail is falling exactly into place with things that God had talked about through Scripture hundreds of years earlier. And God is clearly orchestrating this whole thing. This is God's event. And I think in these two scriptures that John quotes, we can understand a little bit of the significance he sees in the blood and the water that flow. Now these are things he's already used, these, the idea of water and the idea of blood are things he's used earlier in the gospel. In Jesus' teaching he has told the Samaritan woman when he asked her for water, she says you're a Jew, why are you asking me for water? He says if you only knew who's talking to you you'd be asking me and I would give you living water. At the feast, Jesus stood and proclaimed that uh, I am uh, the bread of life. And he says, anyone who thirsts, come to me. And from within, rivers of living water will flow. Jesus also shockingly said earlier in John that unless we drink his blood, we will never know life. And he talks about himself uh, as that sacrifice that has to be received. I think these two quotes go along those lines. The first quote, not a bone of his will be broken. That's actually a reference to the Passover lamb. In Exodus 12, 36, when God is telling Moses that he's going to bring the final, the 10th plague against Egypt and this 10th plague is the angel of death is going to come over the land and he's going to enter every home and kill every firstborn in the whole land of Egypt. So God instructs the Israelites take a lamb without blemish and sacrifice it. Take the blood of this lamb and put it on the doorposts of your house And this night, you you will eat the lamb in your home as a meal. And this night, when the angel of death comes over Egypt, he will see that blood on your house and will not go into your home. And that blood of that lamb uh, was what protected the house from death. And it was the the act, Passover, that first Passover was the act that began Israel's relationship with God. God broke them out of slavery in Egypt and called them to follow him. And he was going to lead them somewhere else. And the Passover was the hinge point where that change of life began. So in Exodus twelve forty six we have this instruction for how you eat the Passover lamb. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. It seems like an odd detail to throw in there. But God was preparing something that he was going to make a point about a couple of thousand years later. A year passed. God broke the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. They were out in the wilderness following after where God was leading them. And in Numbers 9, uh, we read about the second Passover that they celebrated. After one year after leaving. In 9.12, the instruction is repeated. They shall leave none of it, talking about the Passover lamb, none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. So when John quotes this, he is reminding his readers that Jesus is the true Passover Lamb. That his blood shed for us on the cross is the true blood that when applied to the doorposts of your life will protect you from death, will grant you eternal life will atone adequately for your sins that's the whole point of sacrifices is to have the victim uh, pay for the sin of the offender now that really doesn't work animals can't cover human sin but the the Passover lamb was a, a picture God had set up to point forward to a moment when the true lamb would arrive the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world And Jesus is that true Passover lamb. I've talked about this before. You might say it's not fair for God to make an innocent person pay for the sins of the guilty. That is true in every case but this one. If the person paying in your place is the one you have offended. Because he's the only one who has the right to pardon the debt. And say I will cover the cost of it myself. And that's what Jesus did. God became a man and paid for your sin himself so that he could forgive your sin fully. So the blood, I think, calls to the fact that Jesus is that lamb who gave his life to free us from death. And then the other scripture he quotes, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. That's a quote from Zechariah 12. Uh, And in Zechariah 12, the prophet is talking about God restoring uh, the people of Judah to Jerusalem. And then he says this strange thing in verse 10 of chapter 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me... On him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. God's describing a moment when the people look to him, God himself, whom they have pierced and look on him in genuine repentance and weep bitterly over the fact that it is because of us that God had to be pierced. It is my sin that put Jesus on that cross. And I can't look at it and not be utterly broken that it was my fault that he hung there. And it was my sin, and this Zechariah talks about looking on him whom we have pierced, and mourning as you mourn for the loss of your firstborn child. Broken. And this is what God had to do to rescue me. And if we keep reading in Zechariah 12, he talks about how God's going to pour out His grace on, on the house of David, and from there is going to flow a river of grace and mercy. I think John is tying the water that flows to this idea that when you look in repentance on the one who was on that cross and you genuinely repent of your sin and are genuinely broken about it and you turn to Him in in faith the result is what Zechariah was talking about that these rivers of life and grace and mercy will be what flood your life. Jesus died as the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How have you found that turning to Jesus in genuine repentance for your sin has led to grace and life? If you've never experienced that, let me challenge you today to turn to Jesus in that genuine repentance and find out what this is all about. Let's keep reading verse 38. But after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away Jesus' body, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, the one who had earlier come to him by night, came also, bearing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about 75 pounds. So they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the spices as is the Jewish custom to prepare for burial. Now at the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been placed. So there, because of the Jewish preparation, because the tomb was near, they placed Jesus. Now. John tells us about a guy we haven't heard about before, Joseph, a guy who was from the town of Arimathea. He tells us he was a disciple of Jesus, but kind of a different type of disciple than the others we're familiar with. Uh, Jesus had a bunch of disciples that traveled everywhere with him, they were very public about it. it was Everybody could see these guys are following Jesus, and they had pretty much left their jobs and houses and homes and families behind, and they were following Jesus. This guy is a disciple of Jesus, but he hadn't done any of that. He is a stealth disciple. He is a disciple flying under the radar. Nobody knows he's a disciple. And we can understand, if he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was part of this governing body and the... the, the highest of the highest of leadership in Jewish life in Jerusalem the most important group of people in political and religious life among the Jews so he's in this circle of very influential people and he realizes that everybody else seems to not want anything to do with Jesus so maybe he's biding his time hoping that they all come around that they all come to see the error of their ways and there's a turn and then he can say yeah you finally get get it, great, well I'm one of you too, you know, uh, but at the moment he's afraid of the consequences of speaking up for Jesus, he can read the room when they're together and knows that if he speaks up and says something in favor of Jesus, they're not going to look on that kindly because they have made up their minds, they don't like Jesus, they want him dead, not just dead, they want him to die a death that according to the law of Moses uh, means you are cursed, they want him hanging on a tree, so that he dies as a cursed man and they think that will demonstrate he cannot possibly be the Messiah so in that circle Joseph is afraid to say that he is a disciple of Jesus it could cost him his position it could cost him wealth it could it might affect his freedom. He could end up in prison. He could end up dead. Who knows what might happen if he uh, sided with Jesus. Very de- they've demonstrated very powerfully just how vehemently they are opposed to him. But this is the moment he chooses to ask Pilate to take away the body. Now, Pilate put this inscription on the cross to indicate the cause of death, the the crime he had committed. This is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. He put it in three languages, made sure everybody could read that. So, the official cause, uh, the official uh, accusation for which he was crucified was that he was an insurrectionist. Now, if you're part of the religious leadership in Jerusalem and you're trying to stay off the radar, you don't go to Pilate, the Roman who has just killed this guy for being an insurrectionist, and say, would you let me honor him in death? Because you're basically telling Pilate, I don't think you should have had him killed. And very likely the Roman authorities would begin to look at you with suspicion. So there is a danger in requesting this from Pilate. Now, the normal practice was that the Romans themselves would throw these bodies into uh, common graves they had for criminals and they would be disposed of in some way. But there's no reason he needed to insert himself and say, let me take care of that one particular body. But he does. Now, not only is Pilate, the Roman authorities, going to be aware, but everybody else in the Sanhedrin is going to find out about it. Because we know uh, they actually went to Pilate and said, Pilate, we need you to post guards at the tomb so that nobody steals the body and claims he's risen from the dead. Because they heard that Jesus had said that. So they know where the tomb is, who, who put him there. They're going to find all of that out. So he is basically exposing himself before everybody. But he does it. He takes the body and now we're told Nicodemus joins him. We know a little bit more about Nicodemus because in chapter 3 of John he comes to Jesus by night. I don't know if it was because he was embarrassed or if it was just that he didn't want to be there with the hustle and bustle of everybody that surrounded Jesus during the day and he wanted time to talk to him. Uh, It could have been that. Uh, But he spent a good time talking to Jesus and Jesus talked to him about being born from above and about eternal life. They had a a conversation, and Nicodemus clearly is another disciple of Jesus that has been flying under the radar. He's in the Sanhedrin but doesn't want to ruffle feathers. He brings 75 pounds worth of myrrh and aloes, and they use this to wrap Jesus' body in linen cloths with these... uh, aromatic spices and John tells us as is the Jewish custom for burial now normally they would wash the body and take their time and do they obviously don't have time for that but they do what they can they put some spices on him and wrap him in this clothing uh, because Jews did not embalm their dead Uh, they just placed the body on a slab and left it there for about a year and then they would come back in once it had completely decomposed and they would take the bones and put them in these little boxes called ossuaries. so they're, they're following all that. Now, we're told that there happened to be a garden. And in that garden, a tomb nobody had used yet. Uh, right there next to where Jesus was crucified. And I don't know if it belonged to Joseph or Nicodemus. Or if they knew who it belonged to and they had arranged to purchase it. But they basically make sure that they have a tomb in which to place Jesus. And they pick one that is very close. I wonder during that day how much Joseph and Nicodemus were scrambling to put all this together. The place to bury him, the spices, the cloth. And they do. They place him in there. And it's the Jewish preparation for this great high holy Sabbath. The tomb is near. They put it there and they get out of there before the sun's down so that they don't break Sabbath. It's odd. To pick this moment, when all the disciples are hiding and fearing for their lives, when they're crushed and stunned that the thing they thought could never happen, that Jesus, Son of God, Son of David, promised Messiah, has been killed. Not just killed, but killed in a way that places him under a curse. It seemed like it had all fallen apart. And they're in hiding. They're, they're fearing for their lives. And this is the moment Joseph and Nicodemus decide, I'm going to stand tall and tell everybody. This was the death of a righteous man. And I don't care what you say. I don't care what you think. I don't care what the consequences of this are going to be. It's interesting that they laid it all on the line in the moment where it seemed foolish to do so. It seems like the forces of evil have won. Jesus is dead. Why do this? I think finally something broke. When they saw what happened, they finally said, you know what, I don't care. I don't care anymore. Jesus was who he said he is. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. And if these idiots can't see it, I'm, I'm not going to keep quiet any longer. Because even if they killed him, and even if he's stone cold dead, I would rather say, I'm with him than with all of you guys. Even if this is the end of it all, I'm going to stand on this side of things. They don't know what's going to happen as a result of this but this is the moment they say I'm drawing a line in the sand and what they did was not required by the law of Moses they weren't required to do this burial the Romans would have taken care of it this is an act of devotion an act of love And they are telling the world, I don't care what you think or what you do. I don't care what you uh, are going to do to me because of it. But I would rather be with a dead Jesus than with anybody else. That's genuine devotion, I think. They finally reached a point in their lives where they said, I care more about what God thinks than what anybody else thinks. I care more about saying I'm with God and what he's up to than with what anybody else is trying to construct or build. And if that costs me everything I have, then it does, but I'm still doing it. They chose to stand with God. Joseph of Arimathea. And Nicodemus chose the darkest hour to stand with God and turn away from a world that rejects him. Where do you find yourself on a spectrum between those on one end who reject Jesus altogether and those on the other end who are ready to stand by him no matter the cost? What kind of piety characterizes your life? We see two very different kinds of piety in this passage. The Jewish leaders asked Pilate to break the legs of the crucified so that the bodies won't be left overnight on the crosses because that would contaminate the land as Moses warned. They wanted everybody to observe their careful attention to the requirements of God's law so that everyone would be impressed with their piety and attention to detail. they had no interest in actually pleasing God. It was a show. They're just trying to impress. This was the first century version of Instagramming yourself out there. Meanwhile, Jesus has died. God's perfect Passover lamb has given up his life willingly to atone for the sins of the world to make it possible for us to put our faith in him and be cleansed of all sin invited on a journey with him rescued and redeemed if only we will look to him with repentance and genuine regret for our sins that put him on that cross Joseph and Nicodemus show us a very different kind of piety they do something the Law of Moses didn't require They bury Jesus' body and choose that moment to tell the world that they would rather be associated with Jesus, even a dead Jesus, than with Rome or the Jerusalem elite. What kind of piety characterizes your life? We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And this is the time in our service when I invite you to respond to God's word. God, God, God's word is, is conversational. God doesn't just throw out instructions and say, read, you know, don't the Bible's not God's little instruction manual. It's a letter. It's a love poem. It's a conversation. And every time God says something to us, he's calling us to respond in some way. So we have a time every time in our service uh, after we hear God's word where we can respond in some way. And we give you a chance to uh, go. We ha- we'll have two uh, people uh, on either side uh, at the back here if you want a little bit of privacy. But people there, ready to just shake your hand and tell them what God has laid on your heart through the message this morning. Maybe you have not yet put your, your eyes on Jesus. You have not yet turned in repentance to him and found in him not only forgiveness but life abundant. And you want to know how to get that today. Today is your day. Let them walk you through praying and asking Him into your heart and life. Maybe you already know Him and God's calling you to some moment of recommitting yourself or or showing uh, some new level of commitment He's calling you to. Whatever it is God puts on your heart, take this moment to go and pray with these people and uh, respond to God's word in that way. Let's all stand. Uh, I'll ask those who are helping me with the invitation if they'll go to the back right now. And they're ready there to receive you. Come while we sing.